you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, a quick word from a sponsor. That sponsor is Squarespace. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products or services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move, to turn that big idea into a reality. It's all beautifully designed, super easy to use. You don't need to know a lick of code. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LONGFORM. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. Here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, scattered to the winds, but uh, <laughs> tied by the bonds of podcasting. Aaron is is in an undisclosed location, and uh, we miss you, man. When are you coming home? Uh, Thursday. <laughs> cool, cool. See you Thursday, dude. <laughs> uh, this week on the show, Matthew Clam. He is both a fiction writer and a journalist. He came out with a book of short stories in the year 2000. It was widely acclaimed. He received many prizes. He was widely beloved. People couldn't wait for his next book. And uh, it took him 17 years to write his next book. It just came out. It's a novel called Who is Rich? And uh, in between those two books, he did a bunch of magazine work. So we talked about kind of writing fiction, writing nonfiction, the connection between the two, how you involve yourself in both. And uh, I enjoyed myself. Yeah, saw you toting around a novel. Don't, don't see that all the time. I'll tote all kinds of stuff, but not novels. We've got some writers who, who stand on the precipice between fiction and nonfiction who will be appearing at uh, MailChimp's uh, Summer Festival in Georgia that we curated. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, one that comes to mind, Dory Shafrir. Got another one, Okay, Alif Batuman. These things are true. All these people who are writing novels, writing magazine articles, uh, we're going to be talking to them at the Decatur Book Festival. That's Labor Day weekend in Decatur, Georgia. And uh, if you want to read their books, you can go to readthissummer.com. That's where all the uh, fine folks from MailChimp are finding their summer reading list. And you can do the same. We're hoping to see you there. And in the meantime, here's Max with Matthew Clamp. Hey, Matt. Hey, Max. How are you? Uh, I'm all right, man. I'm okay. I uh, I will come clean with you. Uh, I have not slept in some time. You, when was the last time you slept? I think that time zone wise, I woke up at 11 p.m. Eastern yesterday. <laughs> I might uh, fail to speak in complete sentences or cogent thoughts. Uh, just bear with me, I guess. But we might be really loose, and it might sound trippy to your listeners. Speaking of trippy, <laughs> great segue. Sure. 
Here's the thing. Uh, you've written this novel. It's called mm-hmm. Who is Rich? And we got to talk about it. And part of the reason that you are here is a friend of the podcast, Taffy Brodesser Ackner, uh, wrote this great piece about you, New York Magazine, and, uh, and I read it. And uh, the crux of the piece, the tension, if you will, was that uh, it had been some time since you had written a book. Yeah. 17 years. Mm-hmm. Something, something like 17 years. And, and I wanted to talk to you about that gap and we'll talk about it. But first, I feel like to do justice to this program, yes. we should talk about some of your journalism. Yep. You wrote this piece in The Times, in The Times Magazine, yep. about ecstasy yeah. in June of 2001. Yeah. Where were you at in your life at that point? Like, why were you writing that piece? I was, I had done a couple things for, for Adam Moss and The New York Times Magazine and Dan Zalusky, who's now the features editor of The New Yorker, was the editor. And Adam and Dan and I went to lunch and Adam said, I'm just really intrigued by the idea of super high-functioning alcoholics. <laughs> He's like, I, w- I want you to find one and or two or three and write about them. And in the conversation, we started talking about substances we've used and how we've enjoyed them. And we all <laughs> definitely <laughs> – Jesus this is really uh, – Dan didn't have any experience with ecstasy. (laughs) And Adam may or may not have. I'm not sure what he'd like to say about it, but he was perfectly open to the idea that I mention it. And so anyway, we went from there. We just bumbled into the idea of me writing about X. In that time in your life, what role did journalism play? Like, help me understand the balance between sort of nonfiction and fiction in your life at that point. So, you know, I published my first short story in The New Yorker in 1993. And in 1999, I guess, uh, eight or nine, I I had published five or six short stories by then. I don't think I had a – I did have a book contract, but um, I couldn't – I was out of juice. I didn't know what to write about for short story work, and I just thought – this is I should be able to write about anything. And I was really amazed that I pitched an editor at Details Magazine and asked if I could write about, like, the clothing I wore to my grandmother's funeral. I wanted to say something about clothes and funerals. And she was like, nah, you're not qualified. I'd published, like, five or six short stories in the New York. And she's like, <laughs> nope, not interested. And I was like, wow. And then Dan— Wait, it wasn't even, like, that idea is not what we're looking for. It was like, you are not what we're looking for. You're just for. totally— you don't you've never written a magazine story she's like you don't have any credentials and she didn't give me an assignment did you look down on magazine work at that point no i've never looked down on magazine work i love long form you know magazine journalism i mean i was always a maniac about magazines when i was younger i love them and i'm sad in a way that they're in this transitional place now where like the glossy shiny beautiful thing there isn't the thing that we hang on to as much i read you know, Richard Ben Kramer's, you know, um, Ted Williams piece and John Jeremiah Sullivan and Joan Didion. And I I just have lots of stuff. I keep it around. I love DFW, his cruising I'll, piece. I'll retract look down. That, that was the wrong phrase. But yeah. I, I guess what I'm trying to understand a little bit is like yeah. you thought of yourself as a short story writer and then you felt stuck? No, it was more like I just didn't see what I could write next in the way of fiction. And I love getting out in the world. I love having an excuse of being able to leave my house. And I had a couple ideas. And I'm not sure now how I had a conversation right around the time that Dan Zalusky, when he was at Times Magazine, said, do you write, want to write an essay? It was during the first tech boom. It was in 98, I guess. He's like, do you want to write about being the poor guy among your friends who have money or just something? And that is what ended up coming out. And around that same time, like right around the same time, Barbara Jones, who was at Harper's Magazine, said, do you have any ideas? And I said, yeah, I have a Hasidic cousin who lives in Israel. 
Actually, have two, and between them, they had at the time like fifteen children. One, both married to obviously different women with all these babies. And I just thought it was a weird story. And I also had a friend who was a fighter pilot. He was in the Navy, and we had been housemates in college. And he and I had a letter writing habit when he was in training, starting in OCS, Officer Candidate School, and all the way through until he was, you know, flying off of I forget which aircraft carrier during one of the big celebrations for the invasion of Normandy. Just wrote me amazing stuff about walking out onto the deck. It's freezing cold. The deck is moving so much that they have to time it or else they fire you into the water. I don't know if it's in that piece, the Harper's piece. I haven't, it is. It is? Yeah. I just remember thinking like, you poor bastard, like on top of risking your life and all the other stuff, like the physical discomfort. Anyway, uh, so I told her about that and she's like, yeah, let's do that. How did you know how to write that stuff? I mean, if you'd only been writing fiction, like how did you figure out how to do it? I was so not tuned into what I was supposed to be doing that I actually thought that I wasn't supposed to do any outside research. I thought that that would sort of corrupt the process. I thought whatever <laughs> I already knew about my friend Doug was something that could be allowed into the piece and my voice and my take, but that I wasn't allowed to do any other research. And then, you know, um, Barbara said something about U.S. military foreign policy and the size of our military and stuff, and I was like, I better start reading. Did it use, like, a different part of your brain to do that work? I mean, that's a really interesting question, and I think in a way it did, and I think, and I'm trying to sort of stick this together with this most recent novel writing experience, I guess it did. It helped me embrace my – I have this – I don't remember stuff very well. So when I'm learning, when I'm pulling books off the shelf, it's exciting to me because I have friends who kind of carry what they know with them all the time, and I'm just not one of them. And so, yeah, I, it tapped into a part of my brain that, that was um, really tickled. And there was – so like when I write fiction, my wife has a rule, which is – I mean when I write, I never talk about fiction ever while I'm working on it. I still don't really want to talk about it, although I have my elevator pitch sort of things, and I'm happy to talk about it with you. But when I write nonfiction, I can't shut up about it. And she has a rule, which is like, no more Navy, or like, <laughs> no more ecstasy, <laughs> no more Brent Musburger. I wrote a feature about Brent Musburger. There was a short period of time where I knew more about Brent Musburger than anybody but Brent, probably. <laughs> and I still make references to him sometimes. What do you think that's about? Like, why, why are you so eager to talk about what's out in the world and so uh, disinclined to talk about what's in your head? I'm the whole uh, manufacturing process with fiction, and it's lonely, and it's sort of terrifying, and I don't want to talk about it because I think there's no benefit. Nobody else can help me clarify something that I'm not even sure about, but somehow being able to lean on the shelf of books and being able to sit with people who are smart when it comes to studying up on a piece of nonfiction, I, they, it makes, of course, all the difference in the world. But there is some feeling that I'm alone with a piece of fiction and no one is going to sort of recommend that I go the road I go. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, like, it's kind of like no one can help you there. Yeah. Yeah. Did you approach doing journalism, like the actual writing, did you approach the writing differently? Did you think about it differently? I think it's the same problem, which is, you know, when I first started writing, I remember talking to John Irving and Tim O'Brien in the same summer. This is in 1990 or something. And John Irving was like, I, need, I have the whole book mapped out, write to the last sentence. And Tim O'Brien was like, I write the first sentence. And if I can get through that, I write the second sentence. And that's – I'm more like that. So, no, I guess I think I – there's a fantastic feeling you have with a short story and with a sort of chapter in a novel and also with a piece of nonfiction, which is I have a great opening. I have an amazing first paragraph. I'm excited to go on from there. I need that top-heavy sort of weight in the beginning to 
make me feel empowered to continue anything. But, you know, nonfiction, fiction, doesn't matter. Same same sort of workflow. Yeah, like, you know, gotta do as much as I can right away to make sure that whoever's reading isn't going to stop reading. Was it as satisfying? Like, was a great magazine piece as satisfying as a great short story? I mean, there's different. But when you write a, for instance, a cover story for the New York Times magazine, everybody you ever knew in your life sees it. And they feel, I think, they participate more, I think, in a way than when you're publishing a piece of short fiction. Even if it's in The New Yorker, it doesn't feel as, it's not as already farty, you know? When I, you know, I wrote a piece about day trading and about Wall Street, when it, the early days of day trading, and, you know, I had an uncle who was a sort of Wall Street trader guy, and I remember him being so excited that I had taken interest enough in his life, you yeah. know? I, You know, I was sent over by GQ. They ended up, it was the only piece that I've ever had killed, I think, but I ended up selling it to McSweeney's. But I, I went over to Israel and I hung out with my Hasidic cousins for like two, more than two weeks. And um, they were, especially the one guy, uh, Yitzhak, who I spent the most time with, just flattered that I was taking an interest in asking questions and showed up with a kippah and monochrome, you know. And, <laughs> and I still have a little bit of a kind of bond, especially with one of his daughters who I got to know over there. And how often do you get a chance to let someone know who you care about that I, I actually care about you so much I'm going to spend days and days and days and maybe weeks thinking about you, you right. know? In a weird way, I mean, that's actually kind of like the effect sometimes of writing fiction, right? Like, I mean, you write about this in, in Who is Rich, but like taking people in your life and putting them into your work is also kind of a sign of your care and devotion to them? Yeah. I mean, you know, he, the narrator in this book, expresses a real anxiety. He's afraid he's going to hurt people. He's not exactly sure. He's a little bit of an unreliable narrator. Whether he's actually lost friends from having written about his own world, his community before his, but his friends, you know, in his first book. And I think, you know, anybody who isn't a total sociopath would have that consideration when they're writing about their personal life and yeah. using elements of it. Um, and I wanted him to have that anxiety. Yeah, well, I'm just struck by like the answer to the question, which one is more satisfying or are they satisfying in different ways is basically the one time I wrote about like my family that meant a lot. Um, like I was thinking about like, you know, this ecstasy piece, which is like on the cover of the magazine. And I assume like caused a pretty significant stir when it came out, um, is not where your head goes, like where your head goes to your cousin in Israel, which, which does feel connected to fiction in that, like what touched you about doing journalism was sort of bringing these lives, you know, into, into the work rather than like going out in the world and finding something out totally new. We sleepwalk through life. We do. Even when we don't want to, we do. I mean, our, the days pass and it's hard to be conscious of like our mortality and the people we care about and we phone stuff in and we get comfortable and entrenched and we lose that feeling of uh, aliveness, you know? I think if one thing a good piece of writing should do, it's to make us feel alive and to the, for the writing to feel alive. It's um, incredibly satisfying to engage in any element of your environment that you maybe have sort of trampled upon for days or years and to suddenly look hard into it and to feel like you are raising it up. And I'll give you a good example. Out of the blue, Wall Street Journal, you know, when you're about to publish a novel, these things sometimes just fall into the publicist's lab. She's like, hey, Wall Street Journal is this thing. They send you a bottle of booze. You can write whatever you want. I was like, okay, I hadn't been succeeding so well in this. Your novel's about to come out. Why don't you write 
800 words on how to teach fiction or whatever. Like I just, what happened to you in the nineties to make you who you are today? I couldn't, I just wasn't coming up with that stuff. She's like, send, send, we're going to send you a bottle of booze. I'm like, bring it. Yeah. <laughs> and I have a neighbor who is the guy who lives 18 feet away from me who owned my house before I owned it. He built our kitchen out of cherry that he lathed in his basement on the side as a woodworker while working at NASA during the day. Since I've lived there, this has been 15 years, he's retired. He retired at 48. He became a woodworker and then kind of backed into he's now a booze maker. So I thought I'll ask him about this bottle of booze or we'll just drink it together or something. And then as soon as I was – and then I was thinking let's just take it out to where he distills booze out in Middleburg, Virginia. And it ended up being kind of a cool day where we got really bombed (laughs) in the afternoon. But – um. He told me something that ended up in the piece, which was just I was flipping out a little because I'm in August. I'm going to move to Los Angeles alone, essentially, for months to work on a television show. A friend of mine is a showrunner. He's hired me as kind of a goof. And, well, he hired me. And he had this show kind of dropped in his lap to be the showrunner on. And he's he's hired me. What's the show? It's it's Quantico. It's Mm. an FBI show. I I don't know much about it, but anyway, I'm learning. And uh, I have been nervous. You have a kid, right? Yeah. How old? Uh, he's almost three. My daughter's 12, and I haven't missed many goodnights and kissing goodnight and all that stuff, even though she's 12. You probably think she's, a, you know, it's like she's on her way to college, but she, to me, she's still a little kid who needs my protection and assurance and all this stuff. Anyway, the idea that I'm going to be gone, it was freaking me out, and I said something to Peter while we were getting loaded, my neighbor, while we were drinking this booze, and he said my dad went to Vietnam for more than a year, and he said, and we had no way to communicate with him, and I was like, wow, like... I'm, I don't have cancer. I'm not going to war. We have FaceTime. Like, it helped me. And anyway, it made it into the piece, and it was one of those things. Here's a man who I know well. We've hunted rodents. Right. We've traded lawnmowers. You, we've done lots of you stuff You cook together. in his old kitchen. I cook in his old kitchen that he built by hand, but I hadn't done that. And it's just a, a, a tiny example of the kind of thing that I sleepwalk past every day, but with the excuse of a piece of writing, I was able to stare at harder and get stuff out Hey, I'm going to put things on hold with Matt for just a second and tell you a little bit about some sponsors who are making today's show possible. First up, Casper. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. They've got this supportive memory foam that creates an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and, you guessed it, just the right bounce. You can try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, They'll pick it up. They'll refund you everything. It's super easy. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. There's free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada and over 20,000 reviews with an average of 4.8 stars. It's quickly becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. It's also my favorite mattress. Casper sent me one. It comes uh, to your house in a box. You just open the box. You got a beautiful mattress. You didn't have to go anywhere near a mattress store. And uh, the thing is comfortable as all heck. You can't do better. Get 50 bucks toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash longform and using the offer code longform. Again, that's casper.com slash longform and the offer code longform to get 50 bucks off. Terms and conditions, they apply. Here's another thing you should apply yourself. Yes, yourself. You've got a big idea. I know you got a big idea and you've just been uh, meaning to put it on the internet, but you, uh, you haven't. You've been dragging your feet. Perhaps you were a little daunted by the idea of building a website. May I suggest Squarespace? 
Whatever your next big idea might be, you can count on Squarespace to help you create an eye-catching online platform that brings it to life. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to look like an expert right from the start. There's no code. You don't need to know any code. Everything's just drag and drop. It looks great on any device. And uh, if you hit a snag, you won't. But if you do, they've got 24-7 customer support. It's award-winning. They're great. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. It's just super easy. Think of them as your very own IT department. So make your next move and start your free trial at squarespace.com today. You can enter the code LONGFORM to get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's LONGFORM at squarespace.com. Let's get back to Matt Clam. What were you like as a reporter? What are you like as a reporter? Well, what's interesting is you're supposed to be invisible, and a lot of people are happy to have you be invisible. I remember Devin Friedman wrote this great piece about Lil Wayne and Lil Wayne and his sort of staff, they were calling him GQ. They're like, <laughs> hey, GQ, get over here, you know? And I just thought like, well, that's a good lesson to anybody with a big ego who wants to be a reporter because they see you as like a tape recorder with legs or whatever. And I tried to embody that. You tried to live up to that? Yeah. I mean, I lived on an aircraft carrier for four days. I tried to be as as unobtrusive as possible. I heard people say amazing stuff. Some of it made it into the piece. You know, there's that feeling that you have, which I have also as a fiction writer, but certainly have as a nonfiction writer, which is I'm doing something I wouldn't normally do. And I'm doing it for this piece, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm putting myself into it. Somewhat. And as a reporter, I don't know, try to lay low. Were you good at asking hard questions? So I interviewed Robert Downey Jr. When he was just about to really fully resurrect himself, he'd already made Tropic of Thunder. Tropic? Yeah. Tropic Thunder? Tropic Thunder. And yeah. it was like Iron Man was coming out. And that Iron was like Man, the hook of the piece. Right. So Iron Man was coming out. Yeah. And I think he really appreciated the fact that I spent 14 straight hours with him. We started in the morning. I left. It was dark. Met his ex-wife. Met his son. Never, ever went back to that stuff because it had been written about so much. I felt like, why do I need that? Didn't mean I didn't say something fairly vicious in the second paragraph because I did. It was just my own struggle. Like, here I am standing with this guy. We're pretending everything is normal. And it's. I said it's something like it's like being at Thanksgiving with a cousin who last year got drunk and effed the turkey. And this year he's like standing there. He's in law school and you're rooting for him again, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I didn't just, I just felt like I didn't need to. I also felt like I never wanted to get in that kind of adversarial relationship with somebody. Also, I have my own negative thoughts. I don't really need him to help me with that. Yeah. I, th I think part of what I'm asking about is how starting with fiction and then kind of wandering into these magazine pieces, how that like basis in fiction informed the way you did them. That That's what I'm trying to figure out. So I'm wondering, like, uh, when you show up at Robert Downey Jr.'s house, mm -hmm. whether your work as a fiction writer in some way informs the way you are with the guy. I think the rule works across the board, which is be quiet and they'll forget you're there and they'll say amazing stuff. Just amazing. Did it feel like a detour that magazine worked for you? No. I mean, I have a, two letters from magazine editors who want me to do stuff. And I'm not going back to teaching this year. I'm going to do this TV thing. But I have a couple of good ideas, I think. But it's, it's been a while, right? It's been a while since you wrote a magazine feature. Anything. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, the last thing I wrote was in 2009 This about the, the Hasids. But now you feel like it's time to get back? No, it's just that I was sort of buried. I was like, I was 
trying to learn how to be a professor. I had a commute up to Johns Hopkins from D.C., and I was trying to learn how to write a novel, and I was full up, you know, and it's a handy thing about an academic job. You actually can work and teach, but you gotta, you can't do anything else, really. I mean, I couldn't. It's I write too slowly, you know, and I put a lot into my teaching, and it's time-consuming. I'm going to ask one more uh, fiction, nonfiction question, and then we're going to talk about this uh... – that time that you were referring to. My last question is, there's something in the writing of these pieces that I was struck by. Like, I just like sat down, read your whole novel, and then went back and started reading these pieces from, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And the voice is so consistent. Like, like, even in these magazine pieces, you write really similarly to the way that you do in fiction. And there was this passage in in the ecstasy piece which had the same effect on me that a lot of the stuff in the book does. Um, I'm just going to read you this sentence. Sure. The more aggressively you search for the most profound experience of your life, the more rigid, narrowing, dispiriting routine it becomes. <laughs> that sentence felt like right out of your novel to me. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like yeah. exact same tone and rhythm and also point. Well, you know, the ecstasy piece is about, uh, um, uh, you know, a chemical search for identity in a way, a neurochemical kind of search for identity. And this book is about, you know, uh, a search for identity in a different way. This is a guy who says he's an artist, but he's not producing art. So what is he? He's been a dad now for a few years. That's kind of eaten up some of his self-esteem. It's He doesn't really know how to sort of travel outside of it anymore. And he's in this maze as a parent and a married person where he sort of can't go forward, can't get out. So yeah, this kind of struggle for identity problem is consistent there, I think. Can you give the like a uh, quick summary of the book? Every year, an illustrator and cartoonist named Rich Fisher um, leaves his wife and two little kids behind to go teach a class in cartooning at his this annual summer arts conference. Amy O'Donnell is the wife of a Wall Street billionaire and is a painting student at the conference uh, who also who left her three little kids behind. The year before, they met at the conference, bonded over the shock at how their lives are turning out, had a night of passion, spent the winter sending hot texts and emails, and now they're back. And so the book starts when they kind of run into each other, sort of saying, like, it's good that that's over and we don't want any more of that again. And then four days later... They're both their lives have entirely unraveled, and they've gone through a lot of changes. So, why after uh, seventeen years? Why is that the story that you decided to tell? I mean, I don't know where I thought I was going with it. I just know that I had a feeling that some of the big building blocks of the story—people in the middle of careers that are somewhat artistic and maybe don't pay great, but are exciting in some ways and really difficult and unwieldy in other ways, that problem, the parenting problem, marriage, home ownership, those things were building and I knew I wanted them in the beginning of the story. I knew they were part of the base of the story and I thought if I built it strongly enough, I'd go somewhere with it. Every single thing I've ever written is about transgressive sex. There's just no way that wasn't going to be in there. <laughs> it's just, it's, 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 you know, I sexualize things and I think that that is definitely something a psychoanalyst would have something to say about, but it's one of the ways I see the world. I see our bodies in conflict with themselves. The body is in conflict, you know, and I wanted that in there. And I had been going to these conferences. I went as a student twice in like 1989 or something. I went to Breadloaf and I went to this one at Skidmore. And then I was starting a few years later. I was getting invited and teaching and I'd been teaching for years at these places. And I was just seeing people set their conventional persona aside and engage in this other self that is like artistic, but it's also liberated from their home 
life and their work persona and all this other stuff and engaging in behavior almost the way like an adolescent does when he goes up to his room or her room and slams a door and plays the guitar. It's like another self emerges. And I just, I started there. I hoped something weird was going to happen if I put people that I could recognize in that setting. Help me understand this timeline. Like, When does that idea come? When did you start laying down those blocks? It was really because I had a teaching job that I wasn't looking for. Alice McDermott teaches at Hopkins and she's like, do you want this job? Come and read and, you know, we need somebody like you. So in 2000, fall of 2009, I started. And in January of 2010, I set aside a short story that I'd been working on, which I really wasn't crazy about. And I just started this scene that took place at like the mealtime at one of these conferences. And I liked the idea that there were these people who, potentially, you know, in my, in the book, the way it pans out, the faculty are all of all different levels of accomplishment but they're all teaching I knew there was that going on right away and I also knew there was all of this business that people were conducting face to face some of it had to do with the actual what you pay for in this kind of summer camp for grown-ups and some of it had to do with the the stuff you do when you're not under the thumb of like your well-sculpted conventional life you know or whatever it is I just I understand so little about like fiction process you're gonna have to Uh just bear with me on some like yeah very basic questions here but like it had been quite a while since you had published a story was this one of like dozens and dozens of scenes and paths you had walked down like i'm trying to understand why this one was the thing that caught so in like 2011 i got an email something like that from blake bailey who was the he wrote the biographies of richard yates and john cheever he's doing the authorized one of uh, Philip Roth, he's an eminent biographer, and he came to D.C. He said, you're in his letters. James Atlas wrote to Philip Roth and said, you got to read this guy's work. He's like, and by the way, I'm a fan of your first book. And like, what happened to you? And then he's like, let's have brunch. Or we, I said it. So we had brunch. And it, his, basically, he was sort of like, what happened to you? Because you're done. Like, I know it. You're never going to write fiction again. It had been too long. He just thought I was toast. And I'd already started this book. But he was like, what happened to you? <laughs> and I... It just came out of my mouth. I said I never wanted to write another short story. And I realized then what I hadn't really – I hadn't known before, which was I didn't want to write another short story and I didn't know what else to do. So Why not? Because it takes me somewhere between a week and a year to draft a short story. And then whether I draft it in a week or months, I work on it for months and months. And it's just a lot of work. And I just – I couldn't fool myself into thinking it was worth it again. I'd done seven for the sh- collection and another one, an eighth one that came out in 2006. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it. It was like I've done this before. It's kind of like having a conversation with somebody. You've been at a party. You've conversed with them before. And you're <laughs> like, nah, not going to do it again. And so I just felt that way. And I needed something bigger to help spring me into this longer thing. When you say it wasn't worth it to write another story, you mean like worth it for yourself artistically or worth it like – for your career as a writer? I mean, worth it in this, like, shitty, embittered way. Like, I just didn't think that anything it could do for me would pay me back for all of the effort I put into it. And I just, it was sort of like, sorry, we're closed. It was you know? like your, your short stories didn't deserve you? <laughs> yeah, it was like, it was, I mean, it was, you know, there is, right, some artistic consideration there, which is thinking, I had, I'm not sure I have it in the same way now, but There was a time when I had a very romantic notion about the power of a fantastic piece of magazine journalism, short story, novel. And when you do those a few times, I think you lose a little bit of that romantic idea. But I really definitely had that feeling like, you know, just I was so blown away, envious of like Jennifer Egan when she published Look at Me, which I'd seen her first novel. but I didn't love it as much 
as Look at Me, the second novel. I was just like, how does anybody do that? And I just sort of pictured, you know, like Hemingway with a beret, like in a hotel in Spain with a quill pen. I was like so romantic. I was like, that's the coolest thing in the world to write a whole novel. I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> and I had thought that about just short story writing. And then it was fading a little because I'd done it a bunch of times. Right. So it's like you you had done it. And then as soon as you've done it, you're kind of like look around and you're like, this is it? <laughs> a little bit of that. I don't feel that way now about short story writing. I've been blown away in the last two years by short stories again. And I feel excited to write a short story again. I would. I will. I think. Maybe. <laughs> but I want to. I it, they, it seems cool to me again. But I needed to do this other thing. Did any of that have to do with, like, uh, pressure? Did any of that have to do with, like, living up to uh, a great deal of success very early on? Yeah, probably. Sure. I mean, I got the treatment. I mean, when I think about getting the treatment, I think of, like, like I got, you know, a Whiting and a NEA and a, well, I got a Guggenheim, but that was later. But, like, and a Penn Robert Bingham, which is so much money and I just felt a little bit maybe like a New Yorker had hyped me with this 20 under 40 thing and yeah that was quite the list yeah and and I actually that when the 10th anniversary of that list when they did a new list somebody wrote an article about it and they found everybody in it and I was the only one who hadn't done anything since then <laughs> according to them and the, the the article it was like a little paragraph or two and it ended with poor Matthew Clam <laughs> no <laughs> yeah and I haven't like Google to find really? it yep but I felt pretty bad then. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, now you're uh, you've written this uh, great successful book that's on all these lists, so uh, we can talk about this. But like, what was it like to read articles that said poor Matthew Clam and have like <laughs> eminent biographers show up and take you out to brunch and be like, "Fuck happened to you?" Yeah, you're terrible. done. Yeah, bad. Feel, feels bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, yeah. was it just that you were like, ah, these short stories just don't do it for me anymore? Is there? It feels like maybe there had to be something else going on. No, it's a little bit of that sort of maze-like thing I was talking about before. You're in it. You can't see out of it. You don't see progress forward. You can't back out. If you do get out of the maze, you're not going to be in the same form. You can't just pretend you never did it and no one ever said you were capable of more. It's a bad place to be in, you know? Some people never get out of it. And I have no illusions. At the rate I'm writing... It's I'm going to be 83 before I write my next book, you know, <laughs> which is fine. Whatever. I would never take it for granted that anything sort of dictates future success, you know. But, yeah, first it just felt like I was making artistic decisions that were the wrong decisions to make. And then I felt I really felt that so much time had passed that it had become quite awkward. You mean because you were like trying things and they weren't working? Yeah, I, I had. So I wrote, a, a, I think, a book's worth. I think it's 12 magazine features over 6,000 words. I think it's a book's worth of magazine journalism. Not that anybody's put it into a book, but I thought, you know, that if someone had, that we wouldn't be having this conversation the same way. But the fiction part did feel like maybe I had done something that I shouldn't have done. I had violated some kind of integrity of my own. I'm not by writing magazine stuff, but by, I think there was a moment where I sort of thought, Something cocky, and I think I paid for that for about 15 years. What do you mean? I don't operate too well when I'm feeling cocky, feeling secure. That doesn't usually help me work. I need to be a little bit scared. Has that happened a lot, feeling cocky? Yeah. I mean, now that I'm older, I'm 53, I can hear it going on all day. So I'd be working in the winter of 2012, on something that was nothing, but was hoping that it was going to be a whole book, but it was nothing. It was like run off a cliff. I had no idea where I was going next. I had, you know, years ahead of me. 
But I would write a good line or a good section, and I would suddenly be sitting in the chair next to a talk show host who had me on his show. <laughs> and I called it the Letterman effect or the Letterman. I was like, oh, you're on Letterman again. And I do it in the shower or whatever. And I just I would tell myself, you've done it again. you know. And I wouldn't say you have to stop, but I would stop. It's not helpful. But I just got excited. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one piece of that is when sort of accolades and outside validation come very quickly. I mean, that all came within like a couple of years of you writing your first story, right? That was quick. Well, I published the first story in 93, and by 2000, the book was out. About seven years. The better part of seven years was dedicated just to writing those stories, even though I was doing some magazine journalism then. But yeah, for whatever reason, it just sort of built up, and there was sort of no looking back. And then, I, you know, 99, I got married, and I just was like, I got this, you know? And I, I didn't have a job. I was a short story writer with no job, you know? <laughs> and I didn't have any idea where I was headed or how I was going to make a living. And I guess I'm just wondering, like, when that validation comes that early, whether mm. it gets so, like, inextricably linked to the work. You write a good paragraph, and and you're you're on Letterman's couch. Yeah. But I think, I don't know, there's a weird thing that has happened out in the world, too, a few times. I published my first story in 1993. I got a call from a guy at CAA. He's like, we're making this movie. And he's now dead of suicide. He was, Jay Maloney called me on the phone. And when I told friends who knew about the entertainment world, they were like, oh my God, he's Brad Pitt's agent or something like that. You're so set. So that was like 1993. I'd published one story in The New Yorker. I'd published nothing else anywhere else, anywhere, nothing, except uh, in college, I wrote about Amnesty International for the school magazine. (laughs) So it was a weird way to start, you know? And so every once in a while, I've had this moment where like people got excited about my work and it's become, I got, it gets very heady and I get lost and that effect. I mean, I write about it in the first 10 pages of this book that this guy has had this kind of explosive moment and now where is he? He doesn't really know. It's just a factor of, it's some element that's connected to my work and I don't know what to make of it and I'm, it doesn't make, it, it, I made as much sense of it as I could in this book. After writing about it so much, what's it like to have this book having its moment definitely there's some satisfaction you know somebody said the other day like did you celebrate when you wrote the last line and i just said then which what i'll say now which is i don't feel like wherever i'm supposed to arrive i've arrived yet i mean i to all the you know anybody who wants to write a novel i would say yes there are incredible feelings of satisfaction i got the the book in hardback and i smelled it and smelled it and touched it and rubbed it and carried it around and all that kind of stuff but um yeah i mean there's there's a feeling that people who probably weren't my friends anyway now know that I had more in me. But I don't know. I'm just glad that I'm glad I'm getting to hawk this book and not some other book. Like, I like this book. And it kind of came out okay. And I think the most surprising part of it was that I had no idea what I was doing or how I would sort of end it. In the last third, some things happened more quickly. I was actually writing very quickly, it seemed like, and not needing to revise much. And that was exciting to me. It felt Mm -hmm. like I had built up enough expertise in this book and the world, and I was—I felt like I was writing the way a real writer does. <laughs> Finishing paragraphs, knowing they're good, setting them aside, going on to the next thing. But not in a cocky way. <laughs> no, that was just a good—it was a very good, solid feeling, yeah. What do you like about the book? I think I sort of trust the ending. It's a very unsentimental kind of ending, and I think this guy makes some interesting choices as the book gets to the end. And I've heard people say that they were really frustrated about a couple of things he did, like, you idiot, don't do that, don't do that. But I, I knew, felt that way about the one thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. But I knew it was the right thing to do, and I knew why, and I can talk about it. You know, uh, I, I won't spoil it for people who haven't read it, but 
I was happy with the way that stuff happened. I actually was really struggling with that decision and it kind of broke my heart when I knew I had to do the thing I ended up doing because I wanted him to pay dirt. Yeah. <laughs> and he couldn't. <laughs> yeah. I wanted it for him too. I wanted it for him too. It felt uh it felt right to you. Yeah. Yeah. The problems that I had sort of like some kind of real questions I had about some structure and what goes in and what stays were a couple of other moments that were like in the two-thirds mark. And I got an enormous amount of help from Andy Ward, who edits like a magazine editor, meaning he line edits every line of your whole book. And for me, it was twice. People should listen to Andy's episode of Long Form if they haven't already. Uh, I emailed Andy before we talked. Uh-huh. And I was like, what, what, what should I ask Matthew about? And... uh his first thing was um, sex scenes, which I already actually had on my list. But how do you think about writing about sex? I mean, I like it. And so I wanted it to be nice. And I've read beautiful evocations of sex and intimacy in fiction and nonfiction. And I wanted to bring that level of beauty to it. Are those easy for you to write? Are they hard for you to write? I think I remember a lot of the moments I've had. <laughs> I have a... <laughs> for a guy who doesn't remember a lot, those are the things you remember? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Just taking up like the right. whole uh, I'm not... hard drive? <laughs> right. I'm not sure I remember like how we express our U- U.S. military foreign policy, but I do remember <laughs> this amazing scene in the dorm in 1983 <laughs> with somebody named Anne, and it just still, I, yeah, it's really beautiful. And... Um, I was also, there were a couple of writers who I read who seemed to me unapologetically embracing their physical self. And it wasn't just like a nakedly unabashed, unexpurgated updike, but fiction writers, I think, helped kind of show me the way too. There's this element of these scenes, particularly there's one where OxyContin is involved uh-huh. <laughs> and like... It's beautiful, and also the characters are drooling, and it's, like, messy and lovely and also, like, fat and sweaty and sloppy and wonderful, uh-huh. you know, wonderful Thanks. and not salacious. Like, it's honest. Uh-huh. Yeah. You already felt that way to me. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I just kind of wondered how, how you got there. Like, does that just come to you? Is that something you think about for a while? Like, does drool like yeah hit you in the shower one morning like how does that work I, it's such a mystery to me how this stuff happens so the the scene you're talking about the love interest had slipped and fallen during the annual softball game and she had broken her arm she gets the bone set and then once it's been set the lidocaine is going to wear off and the doctor sort of says to the narrator like you're going to need to give her these painkillers And then he forgets to go to the pharmacy, so suddenly she's in pain, and then he's dosing her with OxyContin. And while he's giving her one and then another and ready to give her a third because she's still in so much pain, it sort of kicks in. And while she's sitting there kind of like spacing out, he ends up taking one or two of her pills and then stepping on a third, so he's fucked up half of her stash. And then they're like, they've fallen together. And I just kind of went with it. I mean, I did have shoulder surgery. I got 10 OxyContin and 50 Percocet. And I ended up taking one OxyContin and nothing else. And I didn't even need it, but I wanted to take it as research for the book. And um, I don't know if people drool that much on OxyContin. I just knew that 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 was... I I just knew that guy was. Yeah, yeah, and I wanted the sensor. I wanted it to be really sensory. And I knew that 
they, as much as some people think that this is just a sort of lust between them, I think they really did care for each other. And I wanted some of that to come out. And I also wanted to give the reader pleasure. We all, I think a lot of us started really enjoying sex. And then especially as we age and especially as you're in, you know, a long-term monogamous relationship, you see that it's not as shiny and sparkly as it once was in some ways. And I really wanted to get back to that. And so I had an agenda, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in your agenda. <laughs> I'd like to ask you some questions about your agenda. Sure. <laughs> One question I have is how big is the gap? How big is the gap between you and, and Rich? Well, I definitely think that there are people who will read a piece of first-person fiction, especially where there are there are jokes throughout the book about how it's there. And the guy's teaching a class called semi-autobiographical comics. You know, <laughs> um, there are people who are going to read the narrator as me and the 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 fiction as truth. And I wanted to toy with that because I think for some of us writers, it's ridiculous to think it's drawn from purely from our imaginations. And I just, I think I was getting at a little bit of, in my own sorry-ass way, a little bit of what Tim O'Brien was trying to do in The Things They Carried, where he introduced a narrator named Tim O'Brien. He dedicates the book to fictitious platoon members. But what he was trying to do was bring you into the immediacy of his attempt to tell what he called a true war story. I just couldn't separate myself from that same sort of ambition to bring the reader into my struggle as a writer to draw upon some elements of my personal life and a bunch of stuff that's made up. I wanted them sort of in that soup with me because it's bewildering to me. If you ask me what parts of the story are real and which ones are made up, I mean, it's confusing to me. (laughs) Still. (laughs) It's not paint by numbers. Even if you have an idea, here's what a town looks like. Here's what a certain person, maybe even one who I have in mind, acts like. It's just there's just more to it than that. And anyway, I think it happens for journalists too. As soon as you start making choices, you're diminishing certain things. You're raising other things up, you know. Right. In order to get anything on the page, you start doing weird things to it. You're raising things up. You're sanding other things down. Suddenly, you know, definitely for nonfiction, you can make a subject. You know, magazine journalists know this. You can make them look any way you want. And I really admired Taffy who wrote this profile of me just talking to her a lot. She talks a lot while she's interviewing you. She is really involved in expressing herself, but she also sort of talked to me about her methods and her values, you know, and what things she will and won't do. You can make a person look like a total jackass in a second, especially if you're a good observer, and I am, and a lot of us are who do this kind of stuff, you know? What was it like to get written about like that? Well, it was really satisfying in the end because I usually leave a reader with a little bit of a mixed feeling. You know, <laughs> there's there's ambivalence in there. And I think she was able to do something I can't do for myself. She made people see that I'm actually a nice person who need, who deserves sympathy sometimes. Right. So like 10 years from now when some asshole writes you an email <laughs> and is like, uh, or whatever devices we're using to communicate 10 years from now, when you haven't written a book in 10 years and wants to take you out of brunch and ask you where the fuck you've been, you can just, like, you can just give them Taffy's piece. Yep. What'd your wife think of the book? Well, you know, the, <laughs> the easy way to answer this is that my wife is a psychoanalyst and she really does actually believe in self-exploration and self-expression. She really does. She grew up in a house where they named the cats Franny and Zoe. And she, I think, knows that it's important for a person to express themselves and that when a person doesn't, there is another host of problems that emerge. And I think it's part of her work, you know, to help people find what it is they're thinking in the shrink's office, you know. 
but you know, her husband just wrote a book about adultery, and she, so she, it's probably um, she doesn't. You know, she wants me to be able to work. She does, but it's not all sunshine and candy canes, I guess. Have you guys talked about it? Well, sure, but I guess the thing is, at six forty-five in the morning. When you're walking your puppy down the street and your neighbor walks by and goes, hey, I read your husband's dirty book. You know, maybe it's not the first thing you want to talk to your neighbor about, and especially when it's not your choice. So I think, I mean, Cheslaw, what's his name? The Czech poet. He said, when a writer is born, the family is finished. But I also think, you know, that, that I think about this stuff way more than she does. I think that I probably gin up anxiety and guilt and feelings of conflict in order to excite me. And it was probably worse for me to think that people actually don't care that much, don't notice that much about what I'm doing. <laughs> I, so I want to keep the sort of romantic notion that what I do is so disruptive, you know. But it wasn't disruptive, is what you're telling me, <laughs> aside from 6.45 in the morning seeing your neighbor. Uh, you know, life is not without risks. I ha my narrator is really afraid of hurting other people. I haven't run into that yet, but there's always tomorrow, you know. <laughs> <laughs> when I was reading the book, there um, there's a lot of pretty uncomfortable shit in there, uh -huh. <laughs> like uh -huh. um, things that uh, you just don't like see written out a lot. Mm -hmm. Some some inner monologue stuff and mm -hmm. and kind of some uh, some ugly stuff. Mm -hmm. You mean like harsh judgments of others or feeling mixed feelings about your own children or? Yeah. The mm -hmm. more, like the children stuff was, mm -hmm. was tough mm -hmm. and just kind of the like dull monotony of marriage and middle age was tough. Yeah. And it just felt like there was a, there were a lot of things in your book that were like uh, things that no one says out loud. Yeah. I think. You know, in the book, there are students who are working on things in the class that Rich teaches, and one of them is working on having been raped as a child. Another one is working on the fact that she, on an ambulance crew, thinks she accidentally killed the person who she was trying to do CPR on. And I think there are a lot of people who show up in creative writing classes of any age who are carrying stuff that is literally unsayable to them. And they have lived through all kinds of traumas, and it can't come out. And I want them... I want it to come out. I want to help them get it out. And I, I think I'm also, because I'm not a person who's so in touch with my emotions all the time, I look for it as a way of catharsis. But um, he, my narrator, I think, like me, can go from light to dark and heavy to light fairly quickly. And I like those sentences that bang off each other at right angles. I think that that's fun for me. And I hope that the reader is is willing to go for this ride. Is there something that you figured out in this book? It seems, as a casual reader, didn't know you before an mm -hmm. hour ago. Yeah. It seems as though you're working some stuff out. Yeah. I mean, you were asking me a question no one's asked me. Thanks for asking. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I've been a womanizer since I was three. I have. I've, I've, I'm really good at flirting. And it's one of the things that um, has been kind of, uh, it's like a toy to me. And I think I was working that out. And I think in some ways I helped ruin it for myself. But I think in a kind of a good way in that I kind of overdosed on the romantic idea of romance. You know, I am in love with the idea of love. And these two crazy characters in my book 
really are are in love with love, and I think they project a lot onto each other that maybe isn't you know it's projected, it's not there. I think to be able to sort of be with that feeling every day, all day for years, you just you it take you take it in in a way you, you can't. I mean, I whatever. I just I do feel like in a sort of it was a sort of karmic problem that I was working on, and I think it I, I have been helped. I've tarnished it in a in a good way. I think. Is it more cathartic for you to write it or to have written it? To write it, because once it's written, I mean, already I'm not. I haven't reread this book, and I haven't reread it in months, and I really miss it. But sort of our work is done. You know, <laughs> I'm going to have to move on. Figured all that out. Well, it's not that so much as I don't technically need to work on it. So I, I don't. I'm not allowed to. I don't allow myself to reread it. I don't. I have other things I'm supposed to be doing. But it did help me to reread that stuff in the same way that finding an old journal. You know. You reread something you wrote then and you realize, oh, right, this is me. Well, 17 years from now, <laughs> when you write the next book, come back on. We'll okay. do it again. Thank you. I will. Matthew, thank you. Thank you, Max. This is really fun. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our show is edited by Courtney Harrell, who also doubles as my therapist sometimes. Our sponsors were Casper, Squarespace, and of course our friends at MailChimp. Go to readthissummer.com to read along with us and the good folks at MailChimp. Thanks very much to them, and thanks to Matthew Clam. His book is called Who is Rich? We'll see you next week. <laughs>